Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 5. The last time we saw, when we were in Acts, we saw Stephen's death. He was one of the Acts 6 deacons, if you remember. And then we saw the long history of Christian martyrs since then. Today we're going to see the life of another of the Acts 6 deacons, and that's Philip. And some interesting lessons that we can learn from ministry from an unlikely source, Simon the Sorcerer. Let's start with verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, in context, if you remember two Sundays ago, verses 1 through 4, right? Stephen's just killed. Persecution scatters the believers, and Saul is wreaking havoc against the church. So there's your backdrop. Here, the gospel is taken to the Samaritans, which is north of Jerusalem, and is a mixture of of Jews and Gentiles. And the next time we meet, I'll go a little bit more into the Samaritan history. And then later, you have the final transitions to full Gentiles. So what you have is a paradoxical situation happening in eight verses strung together, verses 1 through 8, from murder havoc and persecution to, in verses 1 through 4, to miracles, exorcisms, and salvation only a few verses away. 2,000 years later, same thing is happening. The world is in chaos. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper to see it. I mean, aside from all the Christian martyrs, I believe the statistics are in the last 10 years, more Christians have died for their faith than all the 2,000 or all the years since Christ brought up to that aggregately. So that's pretty heavy stuff. And of course, you don't really read that in the mainstream media. But what's going on in the world? I just picked one day when I was preparing this and uh, just wanted to read to you just one quick blog here. Talked about the Category 5 storm going through Mexico. Uh, Talked about 20 killed as the floods slammed Midwest. A thousand homes were destroyed. The family of the, the miners we're told that the miners were being left for dead out in Utah. Some miners went in to try to save them, and they died. Dallas man kills his mother, lives with decomposing corpse. United States, report says, is taking twice as many pills than in 97. A jet explodes at the Japanese airport, and more bodies were found at the site of the Minneapolis uh, bridge collapse. Pretty heavy stuff. And to make matters worse, you really brace yourself for this one. Researchers say moose gas is hurting the environment. It's serious. Let me read it. Come on. Norway's Norway's national animal releases methane through burping and flatulence, as do cows, considered more harmful to the environment than carbon dioxide. They are estimated to be more than 100,000 moose in Norway. So we're going to get gassed to death on, on top of everything else. World's in chaos. But at the same time, in Vietnam, in China, in India, many are coming to Christ. And you see joy. I love the the pictures. I mean, I speak about the periodical that I subscribe to, Voice of the Martyrs. We also uh, support them. It's uh, Overseas Missions News. uh, And it's all over the world. And you see these pictures of uh, people, the Hmongs, the Vietnamese, the Hmong people who are being persecuted. They're being baptized in these stagnant brown ponds, coming up out of the water just happy. And just, just to be happy to show the world that they got baptized some water that we wouldn't touch. 
But it's just amazing how these people are just so excited for Jesus Christ. Their families are being murdered and they have joy in the midst of all the chaos. As a matter of fact, in the first week of October, Gospel for Asia, another missionary organization that we support, will be here to speak, uh, to give a sermon. And I told them they can only come if they tell some cool missionary stories. So I can't wait to hear that. But the world is in biformity. The world is having the properties of two forms happening at the same time that are diametrically opposed to each other. And the question is, which side are you on? You have to think about that. Because if you're not part of the latter, you're part of the former by default. Jesus told his hearers to get off the fence. In the church of Laodicea, remember in Revelation, Jesus is speaking to a church when he says, you know, you're not hot for me and you're not cold for me. Because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus says. So you're either going to be part of what God is doing to save the world or part of the enemy's plan, Satan's plan by default. There's no fence-sitting when it comes to spiritual matters. Sidney Harris uh, had a, a great quote, which has been often re-quoted over the years. He said, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. I'm sure you've heard that. If you want to make a positive difference in the world, you have to get on board with what God is doing. And you can start, if you haven't, by giving your heart to Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone whom I may lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Sorcery. There's different English words that say sorcery in our translated text throughout the scripture. But there's another sorcery that's used elsewhere that's not used here. And the Greek word is pharmakeia, which is where we get the word pharmacy from. And that sorcery, used in other scriptures, indicates a, a, an abuse, a, a mixing in a substance abuse kind of mixed in with it. But not here. I'll show you what type of sorcery they're talking about. I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 starting with verse 9, a few verses. 
God is speaking to the children of Israel and talking about them, how they need to behave when they come into the promised land. He says, when you come into the land which, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations or the detestable acts of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who, practice, who makes a practice, who, excuse me, who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Okay, now back to Acts chapter 8. What I find amazing is that how this sorcery, spiritists, mediums, one who interprets omens, one who conjures up the dead, right? What does that sound like? It's invaded our television today. Anybody see that show Crossing Over? The so-called psychic, the channeler? Well, this is what the Bible says about that kind of stuff. You only can fall into two categories. Number one, he's a fraud. And there are many frauds out there. They send out people in the audience before the show starts and they talk to people. And then they signal the person who he should talk to because they have that information. That's the one thing. The second choice, which is even worse, is the person's not a fraud. And they're using demonic activity to contact uh, not actually contact, it, it, it's, it's, it's a fake because Satan is a counterfeit, but they're using demonic activity because demons have been around you know, since God created them. They've seen history. They know your life. So they can actually, you know, a person can allow themselves to be used by the demonic realm to actually get this information. So don't mess around with that stuff. I mean, that, that stuff is serious business. Repent of that and move on from it. Verse 10 it says that the people attributed Simon's magic to God. They thought it was from God. And it's the same thing today. People know nothing of spirituality but will accept anything. We have a nation today that's so smart. We're so technologically savvy. But we're a nation of followers. And we follow anything that we see on television. As long as Dr. Phil or Oprah give their approval, many will follow. Now, I have nothing against Phil or Oprah, but I'm certainly not going to trust them for my salvation. Simon the sorcerer was a grand leader until Philip, the real deal, came preaching the gospel and then they followed Philip. What's the difference in their ministries? Because if you look at it, they both had ministries, right? What's the difference? What makes a godly or a good leader? There's some fundamental differences between the two men and their ministries. What are they? Let's take it apart. Simon had a charismatic personality. Simon was obviously dynamic. Simon could lead people. Simon was convincing. He duped people into believing that he was from God. Simon had ability. You have to hear this. Ability does not, and talent does not necessarily equal being a good leader. Because Simon had ability, that's clear, and he wasn't a good leader. By contrast, Philip, according to Acts chapter 6, was grounded in God's word. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He had a good reputation, and he was obviously obedient, as we'll see. What other scriptural characteristics are necessary for being a good leader, especially in ministry? Things that Simon himself did not possess. One, submission. Simon was submissive to no one in the beginning. He was puffed up, and the only reason why Simon acquiesced to Philip 
was because Philip stole his followers. Think about that. Later on, we'll see that Simon still wanted to do it his way by buying the power that the apostles had and do it his way, you know? And what you have is, you have the difference between being yielded to the Holy Spirit and buying the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's, you can see that in ministries. You can see that in, you know, let's look at the broad spectrum. You can see those who are led by the Holy Spirit, those who are being versus those who are doing, okay? And we hope that doing comes after being. You don't have to, or you don't belong in authority unless you know how to submit to authority. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Peter 5. A rebellious attitude towards those in authority shows immaturity. I'll just give you myself as an example, because I've made all the mistakes that there is, probably, um, except for maybe a few. (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? (laughs) Years ago, I sat under, I'm going to use Pastor Lloyd, Calvary Chapel, Oldbridge. I got saved under Pastor Lloyd's ministry. I got discipled under his ministry. We've had a lot of personal contact. So I'm going to use his name a few times during the service to just give you some examples. But I remember years ago that there was things that were happened that he did or things in the church that, you know, I would always have a reason why I could have done it better. Thank God nobody put me in that position because I would have screwed up the whole church. But Years later, I see, especially being in, in those shoes, you know, you've got to walk a mile in a person's shoes. I can see that I was immature and foolish. And I've actually, I don't know how many times I've apologized to him after the fact, but he, I don't know if he told me this to make me feel better, but he told me there was worse people out there than me, so that, that was a good thing. <laughs> the first thing I did as a new pastor is I submitted myself to Lloyd. Now, again, it doesn't mean I agree with everything he does. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything that his church does and that we're going to model everything after that church. But I submitted myself under his authority. And I didn't have to because we as a church, we're autonomous. We rule ourselves. That's the way the church government is set up. What I want to also explain to you is that there's a caveat to all this. And unfortunately, in today's society, I have to, I have to explain what that is. The caveat is that you never have to submit to anything that is unscriptural, immoral, or unethical. If it goes against the Bible, I don't care who the person is, I don't care what the title is, you do not submit to that, and that's clear. It's kind of like the wife's role to her husband. The Bible commands the wife to give over spiritual leadership to her husband. However, the wife makes a choice to, to give over that spiritual leadership or not. She still has a choice to do that. And even if you read the scripture, it says that she does not have to submit to anything that's ungodly. Okay? So that's what we have to understand submission. question is, how do we react as leaders when we don't get our way? Just because I'm the senior pastor doesn't mean I always get my way. Every year I try out for the worship team for lead vocals, and every year Dave tells me I can't sing. You know? It just frustrates me. I'll try again next year. I'm trying to make light of this. But let's look at vision, okay? I have general oversight as a pastor over this church. I'm the senior pastor. For the most part, let's say children's ministry. 97% of the things they ask me that, can we do this, I say yes to. Sometimes I have to say no. It's just part of my job. It's general oversight. God has given me a vision for this church. Sometimes I'm going to have specific vision. Sometimes I'm going to have general vision. What do I do if somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I have a vision, and my vision doesn't mix with your vision. One's got to go. Well, 
I could either stand my ground and say, this is the vision God's given me, or I could say, well, let's go with your vision. Let me tell you the problem with that. Another person will come up and say, well, I have a vision. It didn't match yours or, or his, but this, one, this one's vision is, is a winner. What we get when we have too much vision is blurred vision, and blurred vision doesn't work in ministry. I love advice. I actually, in my elders' meeting, if you ask any of them, the elders have a lot of insight to what we do. And I don't know how other churches work, but I give them a lot of latitude because to me, they, they support me. They lift my arms. I, I can glean from these men and their different uh, backgrounds and their different years of wisdom. Uh, so I do get a lot of help and a lot of ideas from my elders. But ultimately, I'm the senior pastor and I'm going to make the final decision. And I can't please everyone. And I, I can't try to please everyone. The worst response to not getting our way is to talk about it and keep talking about it and talking about it with other people to the point where it becomes gossip. And that's never the right way to do it. You know, something happened to me recently, and I'm preparing this message. I was actually driving in my patrol car in my other job, and I was going through one of the roads, and I saw two cops just standing there on a traffic job you know, from my department. So I rolled down the window and I was teasing them about standing around. And we talked a little bit, you know, we kid around a lot on the department. And then some policy that the department had was, got, was brought up and I made a, a, a remark, not a terrible remark, but a, a sarcastic remark to get a laugh. And then as I drove away, I was immediately convicted by the Holy Spirit. I actually called up my wife and said, do you know what I just did? Now being a cop, she was like, what'd you do? <laughs> I was like, I, was, I played the hypocrite. But I was immediately convicted as a hypocrite because I wasn't following what the biblical guidelines talk about. You know what? I love the place that I work for. I trust my leadership. They're not always going to make the decisions that I like. But you know what? I've got to practice what I preach. So this message is for me as well as it is for everyone here. Brings me to my next point, honesty. The pe- Let's go back to the story. The people believed that Simon was from the great power of God. We just read that. And he did nothing to correct their thinking. Simon was dishonest. A leader needs to be honest to those he or she is leading and especially mentoring. And that brings me to commitment. If you're an honest leader, you will follow through on your commitments. i just give you another silly story. You might think that I, I, I'm obsessive compulsive and I walk around all day with these little stupid things that bother me, but... The other day I was in an, a doctor's office. <laughs> Josh is shaking his head, yes. <laughs> I was in a doctor's office and I was reading a magazine. And there's a great article that I wanted my wife to read. So before I left the office, I said to the receptionist, I said, can I take this? I promise I'll give it back tomorrow. And she said, sure. She probably didn't care, but I took it with me. Next day comes and I go to run some errands and I'm strapped for time and I see the magazine sitting on my passenger seat. And I thought, I don't feel like bringing it back today. But I said I would. And if I said I would, I need to follow through. Does that mean I follow through on every single commitment? No. But that should be the rule and not the exception. Ecclesiastes says, especially to God, don't make a commitment with your mouth and not follow through on it. It's It's a foolish thing. It's better to not say anything than to say something and not be able to follow through. And that holds true with people too. So commitment. The third thing is humility. Simon wasn't humble. I think you could read from the story that Simon reveled in his fame. Proverbs 18 or 16, 18 through 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And Simon was proud. I listened to uh, one of our elders, Jimmy, 
uh, last Sunday, he had the, uh, what, it, what it means to be like a child, to be like a child. And I thought that was so appropriate because a lot of that message has to do with humility. Jesus, there's, there's, there's a reason why Jesus said that we need to be converted as children before we enter the kingdom of heaven. And humility is one of those things that we should possess. With humility comes correctability. 2 Timothy 4. If you can't be correctable, you shouldn't be in leadership. We often want to laud convicting messages. Oh, Pastor Lloyd, Pastor Joe, that's a great message. How convicting. That was awesome. Fast forward a few weeks until you have to be corrected. What? I didn't do that. What are you talking about? The defenses go right up right away. If you're going to be corrected on something, you know what? Listen to what the person is saying. Pray about it. Give it some time. And maybe they have some valid points there. Correctability is important. The attitude can't be, I like the convicting message for my spouse. (laughs) It has to be for us. We have to receive it. Because if everyone's pointing the finger somewhere else, the message never hits our own hearts. The fourth thing is accountability. Simon wasn't accountable, excuse me, in the beginning. Simon answered to no one and his ministry went unchecked. On the other hand, Philip answered to the apostles, the apostles answered to each other, and they ultimately answered to God. A good leader is accountable to their peers and to the leadership. Two scriptures, if you're taking notes, because I always back what I say with scripture. I don't have anything new under the sun. It's all been here for a long time. Proverbs 27:17. Read 2 Samuel 12 in addition to that. You can't have leadership without accountability. Now, again, as the senior pastor of this church, it's good to do this every once in a while so you understand. Some, maybe some of you are new to church and you don't understand how things work. I mean, you can go to our website. There's some information there. But every once in a while, it's good to bring this kind of stuff up. My major decisions that I make are through prayer, are through listening to my elders, are through um, receiving you know, advice. But the main thing is prayer. The main thing is prayer. I'm in prayer every day. And I'm in prayer about these decisions. And eventually I make a decision. Now, some of the major decisions, if those of you who have been here since the beginning know our church went through some turmoil before I was the pastor, okay, trying to take over a church in that situation, there was a lot of prayer that had to be had, okay? And I had to make some major decisions. What I would do is I would pray, I would make the decisions, and some of those decisions I would call Pastor Lloyd and say, this is the decision I made. Not that I wanted him to overturn my decisions, but I wanted to see... You know, I'm in prayer. Am I hearing from God? This man's been in ministry for over 20 years. All the major decisions that I've made, he said, you did, you did right on. That was the right thing to do. Um, so that, that's what we have here. Uh, and I think that, again, I couldn't pass this opportunity to speak of leadership in the scripture because it's appropriate for all of us in leadership, including me, to look at this and to see what we can learn from this passage of scripture. And I make no apologies in advance to anyone who's convicted by the Holy Spirit. I don't apologize for what the Scripture says and what the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart. Verse 16, the first theological problem that we come to. The Samaritans believed and were baptized, but the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. I'm going to address some of these because these are questions that people have. Well, you might ask me, doesn't a person get sealed upon conversion? What's going on here? Well, if that was your your guess and that's what you thought, the answer is yes. You do get sealed with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. The Greek text here indicates in this particular scripture that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them. The Greek preposition is epi, which we covered some chapters back, upon. 
Now, that's opposed to the Greek words para, as in parakletos, where the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and has a different relationship with us, and sphragis, which in the Greek, which means the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's not indicated here. So I don't believe what they're saying is that, they, that the Holy Spirit didn't seal them upon conversion. That's, then that's not what they're saying. And it appears that Peter and John came to Samaria to lay hands on the new believers as a sort of second Pentecost. Remember we went to Pentecost and we saw the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit? This is sort of like, a, I guess you would say, a Samaritan Pentecost. And what's the reason for it? Well, there was a big rift between the church. It was really a, a racial rift. It was an ethnic rift. I'm sorry, not among the church, but among the southern Jews and the, the northern Jews. And it was a, an ethnic, racial type of rift. And what happened was, I believe that Peter and John were dispatched from Jerusalem to come up north and lay hands on these new believers as almost a, a sign of saying, you know, they're with us, brothers. No more the Jerusalem Jews. We're better than the Samaritan Jews. It's, it's one body here in Christ. Okay? Verse 18, I just want to read that. It says that, he said that, I'm sorry, when Simon saw that through the laying of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. This is another reason to support that the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen upon them versus hadn't sealed them. Okay, and it didn't mean that they weren't saved. And let me explain. Jesus in John 3.8, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You know, when the wind blows, you, you can see the, the trees sway and, and the leaves come down and your hair blows one way or the other. He says you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't, see what, you can't actually see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see the effects of it. And he says the same is with the Spirit. Jesus, or Jesus was a genius. I mean, he just had these simple analogies that you could look at and say, oh, now I understand spiritual things. He said it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fills a person and seals them, I can't see the moment of anybody's conversion. As a matter of fact, I couldn't see the moment of my conversion, but I can see the effects of it on you and on me. And it's the same thing here. So how could Simon see the effects of what these guys were doing when they laid hands if he was looking at their conversion? Not so. More of evidence to say that what he was seeing was the effects of the Holy Spirit falling upon them and the aggregate displays of the Holy Spirit subsequent to that. Does that hope I'm explaining it right? The fact that week to week I don't get many emails asking, what did you mean by that? It means I must be doing a good job here. So if you have any questions, please just ask afterwards or, or send us an email. Okay, the second problem we come to, if Simon believed and was baptized, how could he have harbored such wickedness? I know these are probably a lot of questions you may have. Well, my flippant response is, have you seen the way some Christians treat people? Behave as the world behaves. Be as self-centered as the world is. And be as greedy as the world is. Is it any wonder, people, that we have such a difficult time convincing people in the world of the love of Christ? A lot of people don't want to become Christians, and a lot of it's an excuse, is because the way they see leadership, the way they see Christians, the way they see people who are supposed to be filled with Jesus behave, right? And, and it's, it's a hard thing sometimes for us to break through those, those layers before we can get to their heart. Now, I'm not escaping the question. I will answer it. Was Simon truly saved? God, only God knows his heart. And again, it looks like I'm dodging it again, so I'm going to make sure that I, I hit it from a few angles. Different people have um, different opinions and strong opinions. Some people believe Simon sa was saved, and some people believe that Simon wasn't. Let me go through four points here, okay? Number one, 
There's good evidence for a false conversion based on his lack of fruit or bad fruit. On the other hand, second point is, he could have had a true conversion and backslid big time. Now, backsliding, uh, I believe it's the King James and the New King James uses that translation, was a term that God used for his own people, Israel, when they would lapse back into idolatry, when they would lapse back into rejecting him. He said, oh, backsliding Israel, come back, repent, and come back towards me. Right? So it could have been he had a ma- major backsliding um, issue. Number three, it could have, he could have had a true conversion but hadn't completely let go of all his heart idols, which many Christians still carry. It's funny, we look at the Bible and we, we, we want to judge these people, but we need to look at our own hearts. I mean, if, if, we're, if we're just going to come and learn about all these villains and not look at our own hearts, we're missing the boat completely. Ezekiel 14 speaks about the heart idols of the elders of Israel. What are some heart idols? Past. How many of us behave a certain way today because of what happened to us in our past? Some of us are survivors. We had to survive. And therefore, we had, we're always in survival mode. Some of us have been abused. Some of us, you know, even though we're new creatures in Christ, a lot of times we carry our past with us. And we torment people, usually our spouses and our kids, because nobody else sees what's going on in our homes, we torment people based on our past. Guys, we need to get over our past. And you know what? It, 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 sometimes I do things and I catch myself and say, oh, and I, I could see something back then that kind of do, does something the way I behave today. And I've got to get over it. We need to get over our past. That can be a hard idol. Second thing is greed. I could talk about greed every Sunday, because especially in this country, I think a lot of Christians are susceptible to greed doesn't mean you can't have nice things. Remember, the Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money. Rich people aren't inherently wicked. It's the love of money, where your heart is towards money, and that always desire to have, to have, to have, covetousness. It's a heart idol. Relationships, cut right to the core. Could be a family relationship. Could be a relationship with a child. Could be um, a strained relationship. We hold on to those relationship issues and their heart idols, and it affects how we deal with other people. Or something just locked in a closet somewhere that we just haven't given to the Lord, but we, we still, it still affects our thinking and our behavior. We're new creatures in Christ, but unfortunately a lot of times we still have a part of the old man that's inside of us. The fourth thing is, I find it interesting that when Simon was, or confronted, was confronted by Peter with this sin, A, Peter gives him hope if he repents. See, that's the beauty. We could talk about conviction and we could feel, oh, geez, there's something I've got to think about from Monday through Saturday until next Sunday. You know, something I've got to get right. But you know what? There's always hope in the Bible. There's hope for everyone in our behavior, if we're in sin, if we're not saved. And the hope is to repent. Peter told him, you've got to repent. Ask the Lord for forgiveness of, of, of your heart issue. And that's the gospel message. You know, we've all sinned. We've all offended God in some way. All right, We've all, we all have that chasm between us and the Lord. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. So it would bridge that, that gap between us and God. I was walking with my son the other day. We, um, it's really quiet and peaceful on our street because they're, they're redoing a bridge. Uh, it's really cool to watch the construction of this bridge. It's, it's amazing. I think it's overkill for this little road, but it really is fascinating to, to look at the engineering and I really get into that stuff. So my son and I, we take a walk down to the bridge, which is about three-quarters of a mile, and we talk. Uh, it's great fellowship with my, my little seven-year-old. 
And I, I saw the bridge. And I thought, the bridge, the bridge. Because I'm always trying to teach him things about the Scripture. And I try to use what Jesus did. Simple illustrations to understand spiritual things. And I explained to him the whole bridge. This side, we can't pass. This is God. The other side is the people. And we can't get to each other because of rebellion and sin. So God sent Jesus Christ. You see the bridge that's going up? Boom. He comes down and God and the people could meet again. We could be in fellowship with God because of the bridge. So simple illustrations we could teach our children. We don't have to teach them great theological treatises, but we can teach them simple illustrations to help them understand who Jesus is. So Peter gives him hope if he repents. B, Simon seems at least very remorseful and maybe even repentance, but you know what? We don't know how the story ends, so I'm not going to sit here and make some theological statement on Simon and the end because the Bible doesn't tell us how it ends. Um, hopefully he repented, but you know, only God knows at this point. Applicable scriptures, John, or John 15, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Jesus says, as the branches, you have to abide in the vine. Another simple illustration. The vine gives nutrition and water to the branches so they can thrive and, and produce fruit. He who doesn't you know, abide in me and it doesn't produce fruit, that branch is for nothing else to be cut off and cast in the fire and burned. It's a picture of damnation. Matthew 13, the parables of the soils. There's you know, four basic soils. One of them, uh, the, the, the crop started to grow, and the thorns and the weeds grew up around it and choked its fruitfulness and, and choked it out so it couldn't be fruitful. Second Peter, Hebrews, there's a whole bunch of scriptures that could be applicable to Simon's situation. Some other problems with Simon being in ministry. His heart wasn't towards the people he was ministering to. His heart was to further his own agenda. Let me give you an example. You saw, I told Vinny I was going to talk about, it, about him today, so you should get the CD. But you saw Vinny and Maria and their daughter up here laying hands on him as an elder. A little bit about Vinny. He and his wife love your teens. They truly love your teens. While we're here, he's cooking up some crazy thing to help them to understand who Jesus Christ is. Uh, he takes them on a lot of trips. Uh, if you've been here for a while, he comes up to me and he says, I'd like to go whitewater rafting with the, with the teens, and you have to sign that consent form so your kid could go. You have, uh, he went mountain climbing with the one of them. You know, I don't understand. He, actually, every time he comes up to me and talks about a trip, I get anxiety because mountain climbing, whitewater rafting, why don't you just bungee jump off the Grand Canyon? Hey, that's a good idea, Pastor Joe. It's like, the guy gives me, sheesh. It's like, why don't you play shuffleboard with these kids or something? Works just as well. But he lives, him and his wife live about 45 minutes away. Uh, could go to closer churches, but they love this local fellowship. Simon, on the other hand, didn't care about the local fellowship. His, you know, his thing was just to, to take care of himself. Uh, Simon had a, a personal agenda that superseded loving the body. And Simon's eventually manifest themselves. You see, the difference between Simon and Philip was this. The difference between Simon and Philip was the difference between the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, and self-control, versus the works of the flesh. Some of them include selfish ambition, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. And what, what is our behavior like? Do we manifest more of the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? Philip manifested the fruit of the Spirit. He actually loved these people with the love of Christ. Simon, the first thing that stands out is selfish ambition. He, had selfish, he was an ambitious person. All he cared about was furthering himself 
and he didn't care about the people. So, uh, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? Verse 18, uh, this whole thing about, and actually there's a practice called simony. Simony, if you look it up in the dictionary, is the practice of receiving or selling church office or services for money, which scripturally is disgraceful. Now, I'm not going to judge what other fellowships do, but we don't charge for weddings, funerals, baptisms, any of that stuff. I mean, it, I actually have pictures of the baptisms, some of them in, in, my wild, in my Bible. It's just such a joyous event. Why would we take money for those events? Church office? I remember the time that uh, we had laid hands on Pastor Anthony before he was the assistant pastor. And, you know, we laid hands on him, we prayed. And, you know, I didn't go up to Anthony and, and say, you know, I really want to make you the assistant pastor, but um, my hand is empty. How about putting a few clams down in there? You know what I'm saying? just doesn't happen. He's, he's in the back. But, it, you know, it's, this, it's disgraceful to uh, sell and receive church office and church, I believe, church services, but that's just my opinion. So, Simon was a picture of somebody who was in ministry for the wrong reasons. And verse 23, Peter said to him, you have bitterness and you're bound by iniquity. You might look at that at first and say, I don't get it. He was hanging out with Philip and watching the things that were going on. What, what was the big deal with this guy? Well, bitterness. He was probably jealous because Philip stole the show from him and he never got over it. He just kind of harbored that bitterness. You know, he, he went along with the flow, and, um, but he just never got over that, that bitterness and that jealousy towards Philip. Okay? And the other thing, iniquity. It was the iniquity or the sin of jealousy and covetousness. If we serve in any way except as a true calling of God, these things will creep in. It's just a matter of time. And the last point, the best part of the whole account is, again, there's always hope. Peter completely lays into this guy. I mean, if somebody here was to say that to someone else, these words, they would say, oh, how unchristian. That, that's awful. How could you say those things? Peter completely lays into this man, but he did it, I believe, out of love for the man. But he gave him the opportunity to repent and pray and ask for God to forgive him. With correction should always come hope, as long as the recipient is willing to make those changes in their hearts. You know, again, we come to another villain. We can look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We could look at Herod. We could look at Pilate, right? We could look at Judas. And what are their qualities? Judas was a traitor. Oh, that, that traitor guy. The religious leaders were hypocrites. What a bunch of hypocrites. You know, um, Pontius Pilate was, he couldn't make up his mind. He, the, guy, the guy was uh, an impotent decision maker, right? And we can look at this guy and say he, he wanted to buy and sell the church offices. But again, I would just say this. We, including me, are doing ourselves a disservice if we read these and just look at them as, as stories and look at these people as villains. We have to take the time to look at our own hearts. And I gave you some examples from the pulpit and they're on CD, and they're on the website, so they're, they're not going anywhere, of my shortcomings. It would be a grave disservice if we didn't look at our own hearts and see how we can make the changes based on the story. Let's pray. Uh, an impotent decision.